Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Love Doctor Podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Dr. Leah Tidy, and I'm glad to have you here. Today on the show, I'm answering your questions about jealousy and what to do if you're feeling insecure about your partner watching porn. I also share my interview with Dr. Amy C. Moores, where we debunk some major myths about consensual non-monogamy, like how many people are actually doing it, and is everyone jealous like all the time? Amy shares the most up-to-date research and practical advice on how to navigate romantic relationships, monogamous or non-monogamous. But first, today in sex. How many of you listening own a cat? Like actually a cat and not like some sort of like euphemism for like a vulva. I'm not trying to say like pussy or anything. Like actually a cat. In the U.S., there are the same number of people who own cats as there are people in consensual non-monogamous relationships. Now, when I heard this statistic, I was floored because there is still so much stigma about any relationship styles outside of monogamy that has made it really difficult to talk about it openly. Thankfully, there are some celebrities who are using their star power to shed light on polyamory and consensual non-monogamy. This is a clip from Willow Smith, who talks on the American talk show Red Table Talk, which she hosts alongside her mother, Jada Pinkett Smith, and her grandmother, Adrienne Bamfield Norrison. Could you imagine being in a group and loving everyone equally? No. It's being called the new relationship revolution, polyamory, engaging in multiple intimate relationships at the same time, with nearly half of marriages ending in divorce. The main reasons why divorces happen is infidelity. Less couples are saying I do, and more young people are experimenting with a new kind of love. How did you feel when I told you that I was polyamorous? It feels like it's really all just centered around sex. Don't get frustrated, Willow. Redefining relationships. All right, you brought your boyfriend with you. Remodeling romance. How many other relationships are you involved in right now? Rewriting the rules. You consider yourself a poly newbie. Is traditional marriage a thing of the past? The history of marriage really irks me. Stay tuned. I have to interrupt because I, I am struggling yeah, here. I am struggling. Okay, so it's a very Hollywood clip that I just played for you, but it calls into question how many people are polyamorous and don't talk about it openly. You know, even in my own case, I'm careful about how much I disclose because I worry about my job security and if folks will invite me into schools to teach their kids about sexual health. It's a personal topic for sure, and not one that necessarily needs to be shared with the world. But it is encouraging when people who have a high social status can talk openly about their relationships and get us to think about the many ways that relationships can look. And regardless of the type of relationship we may want, we can all learn a lot about the importance of communication from polyamory. And now, let's get to your calls. Hi, Leah. Recently, my husband and I were talking about our sex life, and it came up that he occasionally views porn. I recognize that most men do, but I was operating under a don't ask, don't tell mindset, and now I'm struggling. I'm really feeling jealous and kind of a little betrayed, and now that's all that's on my mind. I try to be as sex positive as I can in all areas, but this one I really need some help on. Thank you. There's two main pieces I want us to unpack here. Jealousy and our perceptions of porn. So let's start with jealousy. 
Now, jealousy is such a complex emotion because it's it's really a combination of so many different emotions. You know, we're experiencing fear, anger, some disgust, shame, vulnerability, sadness. It goes on and on. And it can cause us to feel insecure while also wanting to reassert our role as someone's partner or lover, even while we are angry with them or upset about their actions. It's kind of a twofold experience where we turn inwards and can reflect on our own insecurities, which we all have, as well as how the actions of our partner make us feel. Now, first, I highly recommend reading Esther Perel's The State of Affairs, where there is an entire chapter dedicated to jealousy. It dives into our cultural understandings of jealousy, why it can be such a difficult emotion to work through, and also how common it is, even though many of us are loath to talk about it. It also talks about how important it is to set boundaries of what is considered cheating and what isn't. Now, this comes up a lot in monogamous relationships where we assume that we have the same values or understanding of cheating or emotional boundaries without ever really clearly stating what those boundaries are. And so we just find out what those boundaries are once our partner or we have crossed them. And that's not a great way to find those out. So for more on jealousy in particular, um, you can also check out episode two of this season that I do with Cassandra Heap. And my conversation with Dr. Amy Seymour's in this episode, it intersects beautifully with that conversation, and it gets into some new language that we could use if we're feeling unsettled or insecure in our relationships. Now, let's talk about porn. So prior to this interaction, have you two talked about porn use? You said it was more of a don't ask, don't tell kind of situation. I think it's really important now that you're feeling in a bit of a crisis to really talk about what it is that makes you uncomfortable and what steps you can take together to feel more secure. You can start by unpacking your own feelings about porn and maybe take some time to write out how it makes you feel when you know that your partner is watching it. And then if you feel up for it, share that with your partner. It can help with the more difficult things we want to discuss and give us a bit of a roadmap to follow. There's also this widespread social perception that porn use is automatically detrimental to relationships. Of course, it can cause issues such as the ones you're facing, but it's important to think about how porn has been positioned in society. If we believe that any porn use is harmful to a relationship or means that a partner is unsatisfied, then we are only hearing part of the story. I talk more about the villainization of porn on episode 5 of this season with Ali Oops, so again, recommend checking that out. There's also a really excellent article called The Perceived Effects of Pornography on the Couple Relationship, where Canadian researchers talked to about 430 heterosexual couples about porn use, where at least one partner uses porn. They found that, yes, of course, there were negative impacts of porn use on relationships, but the most common response in the study, by by quite a large margin, mind you, was no negative impacts, and that there were also several positive impacts indicated by the participants. This is what the authors have to say. We are particularly intrigued by the prominent theme concerning pornography's association with sexual communication. Generally, couples who exhibit poor communication tend to have more sexual and relationship problems than couples with better communication skills, so it is particularly surprising that more attention has not followed previous reports that pornography use may be associated with improved sexual communication. Researchers McNeil and Byers have articulated two mechanisms through which sexual self-disclosure may contribute to sexual and relationship satisfaction. 
Now, in the expressive pathway, sexual self-disclosure, it can increase intimacy, which in turn improves sexual satisfaction. Now, with respect to the data, we found that many people expressed how using pornography made communication easier, and such responses frequently mentioned learning about each other through sexual self-disclosure of likes and dislikes, as well as an increased perceived closeness and intimacy that accompanied such communications. Now, these researchers also believe that sexual self-disclosure can impact sexual satisfaction instrumentally by fostering changes in sexual scripts that optimize sexual encounters for both parties. Okay, so back to what I have to say. So in unpacking your own feelings of jealousy and perceptions of porn use, maybe you and your partner can start an important dialogue about using porn in your relationship and set some boundaries about what using porn might look like in your relationship. And maybe by watching porn together or talking about the types of things that you like to watch, you can actually increase intimacy in the relationship by sharing these likes and dislikes and let that fuel your sex life. And because my interview with Dr. Amy C. Moores was so fantastic, and I really think it will help you, caller, and many others, I'm only going to answer one question today so we can get into it. Team, this is an interview that blew my mind, and I, I literally am a polyamorous person and a sexual health educator. So Dr. Moores is an assistant professor of psychology at Chapman University and a research fellow at the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. She knows her stuff and was truly a delight to speak to. Good morning, Dr. Amy C. Moores. I am so excited that you are here today talking to me about consensual non-monogamy. Uh, before we get into these like myths and ideas people have about it, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into doing this research about consensual non-monogamy or CNM? Because we're going to say it a lot in this interview. Yeah, it is a mouthful. Um, oh, thanks so much for having me here today, Leah. So most of my time is spent as an assistant professor at Chapman University, where I teach a psychology course related to gender and sexual orientation. And then in addition to teaching that course, I have a research lab where most of our time is actually focused on understanding consensually non-monogamous relationships, queer relationships, and just people's desire around sexuality, and particularly sexualities that fall outside of the mainstream uh, heterosexuality and monogamous relationships in our society. That's excellent. And, you know, as we were kind of just saying before we started recording, there seems to be a real energy and interest around talking about consensual non-monogamous relationships that wasn't really there previously. Like, what do you think is happening? Like, what's happening in the zeitgeist that people are like, oh, yeah, now we are ready to talk about this? Yeah, I, I wish I knew the answer to that, but whatever is happening in the backdrop, I'm here for it. I'm so excited that, you know, there seems to be media representation of people who engage in non-monogamy. Like most recently, Will had a really great uh, red talk table with her mother and her grandmother. Um, Ricky Martin has talked about how he is in an open relationship within the past couple of years where when about 12 years ago, when I started this research, it was just kind of rumors in, you know, tabloids about maybe they have an open relationship, or maybe this couple is actually having an affair. And they're just, there wasn't that kind of, for lack of better words, face of non-monogamy. And we have celebrities or public figures or even movie plot surrounding non-monogamy. Then it starts to get into the homes of average Americans. 
Um, so I, I think quite a few things are happening. One is probably the legalization of same gender or same sex marriage. That was a really big hurdle to get over. Um, that queer desire could be legalized and that you could raise a family and this what you know the US deemed illegal for a very long time. And so you know, I guess once that kind of hurdle is passed in terms of the legislation, it can give a bit more breathing room for the other types of ways that people want to organize their intimate life. And so perhaps that's also in addition to the celebrity representation and, you know, we're all, all stuck at home too in the pandemic. And so we're consuming a lot of media and we might be tapping into media that talks about open relationships and polyamory. So there's this like, wave right now. And I am again here for it. I'm so excited that people are talking about non-monogamy. I have, I have so many questions for you. And I know that questions that have come up from listeners as well. So I'm going to pick up on some on the few things that you said. But first, let's let's talk about I've deemed them kind of like five myths about consensual non-monogamy. And maybe we'll just do kind of like a brief breakdown of like, what are these myths? And then we'll do a bit of a, a deeper dive. Okay, are you ready for me to, to hit you with all of yeah. these? <laughs> so the first one is that no one is doing consensual non-monogamy. Right. Yeah, in our society, we're inundated with these messages that monogamy is the ideal way to have a relationship. You know, you're supposed to find your one and only, and that's central to dating advice. It's central to romantic comedy plot lines, even like nursery rhymes and fairy tales. We're getting these very clear messages that monogamy is the ideal type of relationship. And then as we were just talking about before, there's very few media representations of people who don't practice monogamy. And so it's not like you can go to the airport and flip through a mag magazine and like, oh, here's this celebrity thruple or here's dating advice related to polyamory. This, this information isn't easily accessible. And when it's not easily accessible, you know, this misconception that no one is engaging in non-monogamy. And so we have this priority placed on monogamy. And when my colleagues and I actually conducted the first nationally representative sample, um, asking people in the U.S., have you engaged in a sexually open relationship or a consensually non-monogamous relationship before? So even in terms of research, we just didn't have that basic prevalence knowledge. And, you know, much to my surprise, we found that about one out of five people have engaged in some form of consensually non-monogamous relationship at some point during their life. And to help that statistic into perspective, that's as common as how many people own a cat in the U.S. or speak a language other than English at home. So we're talking about something that is actually, you know, dare I say, a normative behavior. Uh, one out of five is actually really high that people, and they could be engaging in an open relationship or a polyamorous relationship or a swinging relationship. But never, nevertheless, it's still some form of consensual non-monogamy. I I just I found that statistic so staggering in two parts because the fact that this research had not been done before just shows like the gap in the knowledge and also shows, you know, the priorities that funding and researchers have had before to not look into this. But then to realize there's such a, a prevalence. And I, I love that. Obviously, it's not saying that everyone who has a cat is also, you know, consensually non-monogamous, but the fact that those rates are equivalent with each other. I love that. I feel like I feel like you're already blowing so many minds right now. <laughs> 
sure about the Venn diagram overlap between cat owners and people who practice non-monogamy. I'm sure there's some overlap, (laughs) Uh, but yeah, it just, you know, it's just such a mundane statistic. Like we don't stigmatize cat ownership, um, but we really stigmatize engaging in relationships other than, you know, sexually and romantic exclusive ones. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I love that you bring in like media representation and those stories that were fed from such a young age about the relationships and what they should look like. As you said, finding your one and only, your Prince Charming or something like that. And again, just really like narrowed it down to that one person. And then for me, it also feels like people who aren't in relationships of any kind and choose to do that then there's all this shame around like failure of not being able to meet this standard of monogamy that we have said is like the norm. It's it's even more than the norm. It's a desired thing that, that people are trying to achieve in their lives. Right. Yeah. It can lead to a lot of, you know, internalized stigmatization and just feeling like something is wrong with me if I'm desiring multiple partners But then, you know, some more statistics bring this light too. Uh, researchers in Canada, specifically Nicole Fairbrother and colleagues, did their own study understanding at the national level in Canada how many people have engaged in non-monogamy and what's the interest. And uh, they did their study a little bit differently than we did. And they found something really interesting. When you ask people who are currently in a relationship what is their ideal type of relationship? About one in eight say that a consensually non-monogamous relationship is their ideal. So this is even happening among people who are currently in one and like something's happening within that relationship where maybe they're not able to explore that ideal or maybe there's a mismatch with their partner. But even this desire among people who are currently partnered to engage in non-monogamy is really common, let alone past behavior of previously engaging. Mm-hmm. That's that's so interesting, and and I think that just shows that when we are even in relationships, there's a real fear to to be vulnerable in that way because it can become a reflection on you know on you, but then also on your partner. I hear from a lot of people if they come out to their partners saying that they're bisexual, or they come out to partners that they're interested in consensual non monogamy then sometimes that partner can respond in a way of being like, I'm not enough for you. And that becomes that fear. And it's not about this person's relational orientation. Um, it's about that sense of, we just don't know how to navigate that without feeling like it has something to do with something that we're lacking, maybe. Yeah. And I hope we'll be able to talk more about that idea of insecurity and how that's like linked to jealousy. Absolutely. Okay. So I want to ask this. The second myth that I have here that I want to ask you about is people in consensual non-monogamous relationships have lower quality relationships and they just can't commit. Yeah, I hear this a lot. It's definitely a misconception, a stereotype about, you know, how people can navigate their, you know, emotional and sexual bonds across multiple partners So in our society, we seem to be fine with this idea that platonic love is endless. Like 
I could go on and on about how I have multiple best friends and I love them. And, you know, I was raised by two parents. I love my mom and my dad. And I could say this in front of a huge public audience and no one in that audience is going to be booing me or like, oh, that's disgusting. I would get no hackling like um, whatsoever. But, you know, if someone were to go in front of a large public audience and be like, oh, I have like two partners or I have a two boyfriends or girlfriends or spouses or whatever, like there would be a moral panic would instill among some people in the audience and it would be audible. And so we are fine with this idea that platonic and friend love is endless. But in the case of romantic love, our society is really set up where that is limited. All of a sudden, this is zero-sum thinking. You can only give that love to one other person. It can't be spread across multiple romantic partners. And so this zero-sum thinking about love really helps fuel this misconception that people who engage in non-monogamy must have low-quality relationships. They must not really be committed to their partner. Partners. And so to understand relationship quality, my colleagues and I conducted a really large survey of more than 2,000 people who were engaged in monogamous relationships and who were engaged in consensually non-monogamous relationships. And we asked these people to answer dozens of questions about commitment, satisfaction, love, trust, and jealousy. And we decided to use really popular and validated measures of relationship quality. So these were measures that other researchers were using, and they have found that these measures best represent love and trust and commitment. So we weren't creating our own items. We were using scales that lots of romantic relationship researchers use. And we found that people actually engaged in monogamous and consensually non-monogamous relationships report similar levels of several measures of relationship quality. So people in both types of relationships reported really high levels of commitment, high levels of satisfaction, and high levels of passionate love. So there were no differences. People were really satisfied on these dimensions, regardless of whether they were in a monogamous or consensually non-monogamous relationship. We also found that people engaged in consensual non-monogamy reported slightly higher levels of sexual satisfaction in their relationship and slightly higher levels of trust in their relationship than people in monogamous relationships. And what we actually found, and I probably can speak on behalf of all my co-authors on this paper, what we found that was really most interesting about the study was the results related to jealousy. And we used two popular measures of jealousy in the study. One looked at people's attitudes and worry about their partners. So like, I'm worried that my partner is going to leave me or I get really jealous easily. So more like attitudes, things that can like live up in the head. And then we also asked questions related to behavior surrounding jealousy. And these were a lot of controlling behaviors. Like I go through my, my partner's phone or their pocketbook or their email, or I need to know where they are when I'm not with them. So, you know, really these types of behavioral and control sorts of things. And we found that people engaged in monogamy report really high levels of jealousy on both of these measures. And people engaged in non-monogamy report actually very, very low levels. And in the field of psychology and other social sciences, we use the term called effect size. So like how big is the magnitude of that relationship? And this effect size was large and 
Throughout my entire career, this was one of the largest effect sizes that I've seen, meaning that there was a really big difference in how people engaged in monogamy scored very high on jealousy and people engaged in non-monogamy scored very low. That is so fascinating because it's, I mean, that totally is like the third myth I was going to ask about like people who are in CNM relationships are more jealous than people in non-monogamous, sorry, in monogamous relationships. And your research has just shown us actually that is not the case. And what I kind of, you know, wonder as like a qualitative and an arts-based researcher is, is it because to be in a consensual non-monogamous relationships, there has to be a high level of communication and trust between all partners involved. Like it, it involves a high level of vulnerability. And not to say, obviously, that monogamous relationships don't also have that. But I wonder if there's like an increased sense of that trust and communication that is built into that consensual piece of non-monogamy. Right. Yeah. And qualitative researchers have found that exact like underlying element that you're talking to that you do have to openly communicate with your partners to manage these emotional and sexual bonds. You know, often people need to be very transparent about kind of where they are, how they feel about different people, and putting a lot more effort into communicating in ways that maybe people just in monogamous relationships don't necessarily need to do, or they're not even taught how to do. Like in the US, we have like sex education. I'm aware that Canada is, your sex education across the board is much more comprehensive than ours in the US. Um, But regardless, even in those types of courses, we're not really teaching adolescents or youth about how to communicate with your partner, like how to share your, you know, how you feel about someone or your emotions or being vulnerable or, you know, I think a lot of that is just like up to people to kind of figure out, or maybe they're reading resources on it. So something's happening when people engage in non-monogamy where they just might need to talk with their partners in a different way than they have previously, if they were previously engaged in monogamous relationships. Absolutely. I think it's, you know, and I see it so often when I go into high schools, middle schools, and even working with my university students of how important it is to practice that language around boundary setting. And I think quite often in terms of when we think about monogamous relationships, we think, okay, well, now that I'm in a monogamous relationship, I won't cheat. But that means something different for everyone, right? And Esther Perel's book, State of Affairs, has a beautiful conversation about, well, what does that look like for each of us? And so in, you know, in, I would say, in my own experiences of consensual non-monogamy and then also looking at the research – you have to be explicit about what those boundaries are because that is the the foundation that it rests on. And there's some quote about like, you know, if people are interested in having lots of sex, well, that's not really the case a lot of the time for folks who are maybe entering into like polyamorous relationships. It's like, absolutely. But the first thing is talking. You have to communicate first before any of the other aspects of relationships can come up. So it's just so fascinating to think about giving people the tools to have these important conversations, regardless of the relationships that they are in. Right. Yeah, absolutely. 
something too that you're kind of reminding me about jealousy and like how people need to communicate with their partners. There was a really interesting, it's actually, well, I'm a, I'm a research geek. So it's one of my favorite studies. Let's just call it what it is. Um, and it's by uh, two researchers, Annie Ritchie and Meg John Barker. Um, and this is some of the really early work on polyamory. And they published this paper in 2006. And they it's a really beautiful qualitative study asking people who practice polyamory to describe kind of like how they're feeling about their relationships and trying to pinpoint new language that might have been developed because our English language might not comprehend the types of emotions that they're experiencing engaged in polyamory. And quite a few words showed up around jealousy. So Things like people saying that they felt shaky or wobbly, so they didn't feel comfortable using the word jealousy because it seemed too noxious or too intense about how they were feeling. Instead, they were feeling like low levels of discomfort. And so they were creating new words to communicate with their partner and to just be very precise and clear about how they're feeling. And often people, you know, engaged in non-monogamy are creating some of these new words to describe not only their relationship orientation, but even their desires or, you know, emotional states given in a situation. I love that, the shaky or wobbly. And I think so often as we're finding out, like language is not, it has not caught up to the full breadth of our experiences, our emotions, and the fact that we have one word for love in English as well. Like it just seems so, uh, so complex that you need to get creative in how you're trying to explain those emotions to someone. And so, yeah, wobbly, shaky, let's normalize listeners. Let's normalize using those words as well, because I just think they're a beautiful way to kind of check in with someone to say, ooh, I'm feeling like this little bit of discomfort. And that's a way for us to, it's our body and emotions telling us, that, ooh, I feel like there's a boundary that's maybe been crossed or about to be crossed. So how do we address this now before it's gone past that line, before we're in a more like fully like experiencing jealousy? So being able to address it when it's those, I don't want to say a smaller emotion because that's not true, but being able to address it when it's just at the beginning of those and it's not becoming this like ongoing issue throughout our relationships, which is much harder to address than when those initial feelings arise within us. Right, right. But if we're under the assumption that we're either going to experience jealousy, yes or no, and it's like, you know, discreet and it's not this like continuum, then it can be so confusing for people. So I'm, I'm with you. Let's normalize these types of words. Like I'm feeling, you know, uncomfortable or wobbly or shaky. It could really go a long way for no matter what type of relationship people are in. Absolutely. Okay. There's two more myths I want to talk about, and then I want to talk more about your work and also about some of the terms that we use in terms of, I mean, we've talked about polyamory and consensual non-monogamy, but first, uh, let's talk about the myth that people in consensual non-monogamous relationships have higher rates of STIs. Right. And so 
It's interesting to think about this misconception because people who engage in consensual non-monogamy actually, on average, have more sexual partners than people who engage in non-monogamy. So there is this discrepancy happening where people who have multiple sexual partners, you know, and that's the way they orient themselves towards the relationships over the life course tend to have, um, Justin LaMiller in 2015 was one of the first to kind of capture this, and about, on average, like three to four sexual more sexual partners partners than people who engage in uh, monogamous relationships. But what's really interesting to think about is even though the prevalence of having more partners is higher among people who engage in non-monogamy, their safer sex behaviors are radically different than people who engage in monogamous relationships. In monogamous relationships and just in general in our society, we tend to conflate intimacy uh, with not using safer sex barrier methods. Mm -hmm. So on average, people who engage in a monogamous relationship, they're often signifying that they're sexually exclusive when they stop using a barrier method. And so in terms of, uh, you know, where there is a penis involved in penetrative sex, you're often, you know, not using condoms typically will solidify the relationship. Oh, we're exclusive and switching to maybe like a hormonal birth control um, method. One way to look at uh, STI rates is my colleagues and I, we compared the safer sex behaviors of people who engage in non-monogamy, so in consensual non-monogamy. So they had multiple sexual partners. They all said that they currently did. And then we compared them to people who were engaged in monogamous relationships who were currently cheating on their partner. So they actually had multiple sexual partners. So now we could make comparisons among two groups of people who have multiple sexual partners. One is doing it transparently and consensually, and then the other group of people are doing it discreetly. Um, and are, you know, what we call cheating in our society. And so we ask people a range of questions about what they're doing with their extradiatic partners, meaning not the person that they're in a committed relationship with in the monogamous case. What are they doing with this affair partner? And then in consensually non-monogamous relationships, we ask them, what are you doing with all of your partners? And we ask them, do you use condoms? Do you use uh, for different types of sexual acts, for oral sex, for, you know, anal sex? And do you regularly get tested? Do you communicate your test results with your partners? And we found across the board all of the safer sex strategies that we asked that people engaged in consensually non-monogamous relationships were more likely to employ them than people engaged in monogamous relationships. So specifically, people engaged in non-monogamy were more likely to use condoms for vaginal sex, oral sex, and anal sex to sterilize their sex toys correctly. They were more likely to discuss their STI testing history, to share how many past partners they've had. They were less likely to be under the influence of alcohol or drugs, and they were more likely than people engaged in monogamy and who were cheating on their partner to tell their partner that they had multiple partners. So no matter how we asked about safer sex behaviors, people engaged in non-monogamy were, you know, employing all of these different methods and to a substantially higher rate than people who were in ostensibly monogamous relationships. And then a couple years later, Justin LaMiller looked at how people, the extent to which they contracted STIs. And he found that people engaged in 
consensually non-monogamous relationships and people who engage in monogamous relationships have similar levels of contracting STIs across the lifespan. So even though people engaged in non-monogamy have more partners on average than people engaged in monogamous relationships, both groups of people were equally likely to contract chlamydia or gonorrhea or other sorts of STIs. You've absolutely blown my mind. Like I, I knew this was a myth, but to have research, recent, you know, well-crafted, peer-reviewed research that tells us actually that's that's not the case. And I think maybe a part of it too, it's it's that level of communication, but it's not even communication of like, what are you into? It says, okay, what are the methods that we are using? Like, as you said, getting that SEI testing, communicating that regularly, which would be helpful in any relationship, I think any relationship to be able to talk about that. And I think sometimes I, what I found really fascinating is this conflation of intimacy with not using forms of birth control or barrier methods, right? And so some people will say that they're fluid bonded, meaning that, you know, these partners don't use different contraceptive or barrier methods between each other, but how that kind of creates that, uh, that narrative of, if you are using different methods, then you don't trust me as much. We're not as intimate. You know, and, and there's just all sorts of assumptions that are built into that. So no wonder we have a hard time getting people to use contraception sometimes because there's this feeling of like, well, if you're asking me to use a condom, like, are you sleeping with other people? Do you not trust me? Yeah. And so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking as a sexual health educator, how important this research is when you're doing a workshop about sexually transmitted infections to kind of debunk some of those ideas right away to say research has told us this because I think we use it as a scare tactic, but then we're like, oh, but nobody actually uses those. Once they're in committed monogamous relationships, then it's no longer an issue. I I I, I love that. And I, I'll also just say to listeners right now, we will have lists to all of these studies in the episode description and listed on my website as well. And I will list your website as well, Amy, because I just I know people are going to have more questions and will want to like read about it themselves because it's just amazing work. Yeah. Oh, happy to share all of those articles and, you know, even answer emails. I love talking about research. <laughs> yeah, it's just when when we first did the study a few years ago, I mean, the results also kind of blew me away too, where, and then when I think about the results I, I then I started to shift my framework where actually the ultimate care that you can do for someone is care about their sexual health. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, maybe reframing this intimacy as like, you know, oh, no, actually, I care about you so much. We're going to employ all of these safer sex practices because I would never want to jeopardize your health. Or we tend to not have that narrative when we're talking about STI practices and condom use and things like that. I wonder, this is like a, a slight sidebar for me, but I'm thinking about, you know, uh, wearing masks because of COVID-19 and also getting our vaccine. That is a lot of the public health messaging in Canada and in the US around, you know, looking after yourself, looking after the people that you love and looking after your community. These are the steps that we take. And I, I, I really love that. If we could reframe talking about contraception and different barrier methods as a way to saying, this demonstrates my respect to you as an individual, to your health, to your autonomy, to your choices, and for both of us to be engaged in that. I would love to see that public health messaging change from that shame-based model to one that can be 
empowering and respectful and really having people honor like each other and, and their health and making sure that you're looking after it. Right. Yeah, no, I love that. And that would be so radical and wonderful if we could shift that framework. It's also getting me to think too, I wish that just STI testing was as routine and normal as going to the dentist, you know, getting that really nice deep clean once or twice a year from the dentist. And, uh, you know, you might have some anxiety around it. Some people don't like going to the dentist or, you know, you're worried that something bad might happen. Um, but if we could just kind of make it, uh, if we could live in a world too, where you're just doing this routinely because you know that it's good for your health and, you know, potentially the health of others. That's the type of world that, you know, I think chlamydia wouldn't be one out of five people have contracted it if we started to have those sorts of frameworks around um, sexual health. Absolutely. I'm going to ask you one more uh, myth about consensual non-monogamy, and then we're going to we're going to get a bit more into the work and some of the language. And this is one that I I just added before, so I haven't given you any prep time for it. So this one is: people who are bisexual are automatically non-monogamous. Right? Yeah. Oh, it's such a tricky misconception too, because a lot of it is rooted in just misunderstanding bisexuality and by erasure in general. So the idea that, you know, just because someone might be attracted to, you know, cis men or women or trans people, because that attraction is broad, therefore the only way they could be satisfied is with multiple partners, uh, where people, you know, often people in monogamous relationships are in a mixed orientation relationship, meaning one partner is typically heterosexual and the other is bisexual. When we think of the LGBTQ community, what typically comes to mind are gay men and lesbian women, but the highest prevalence of people who would actually fall under the umbrella of the LGBT community are people who engage in bisexuality. Um, There's a lot of stigma surrounding bisexuality. And so people often don't talk about their bisexuality, or if they get into a heterosexual relationship, they often, for lack of better words, suppress it, or it's just not as salient. So they're not talking about it as much, but actually there's a very large proportion of people who identify as bisexual. There is overlap of people who engage, who are bisexual and non-monogamy. In fact, some of my earlier work has found that people who identify as gay, lesbian, or bisexual are about two and a half times more likely than heterosexual people to have engaged in non-monogamy at some point during their life. But it's not to say that Every single person who is engaging in non-monogamy is bisexual. That's not what's happening. Uh, there are plenty of heterosexual people with multiple partners. There are plenty of gay, lesbian, bi, questioning, people who don't even want to label. There are asexual people engaging in non-monogamy. Um, but yeah, this is just a really tricky misconception. And it takes a lot of education for people to unpack so you have the issue surrounding bisexuality and, and then there's also, you have to unpack, you know, non-monogamy. It's not also like people are insatiable and that's why they need multiple partners. It's just some people actually even describe sexual orientation similarly to a relationship orientation. Like it's just the ways in which people are kind of relating to 
relationships or to uh, queer desire. And so, yeah, I wish I had a clear answer about, okay, this is how we debunk this misconception. It's there and it's really complicated because we have so much stigma surrounding bisexuality and we're, and a lot of people are very confused about it, but there are so many mixed relationships and mixed orientation relationships where people are very happy and thriving in monogamous relationships because that's the type of relationship that they want. And then there's also really great success stories of people who are bisexual, who are, let's say polyamorous, because that's the type of relationship that they want. Mm -hmm. You packed in so much excellent information. And yeah, as listeners, I did not prepare you at all. I was just like, this is a question that I thought of, and I really wanted to ask you. And what a, what a beautiful response too. I think there's, there's kind of two quick things I want to pick up on that. I think really interesting, you know, in terms of uh, awareness of like, you know, that bisexual folks make up kind of the highest majority of folks who are um, identified in the LGBTQ plus community. And I was recently uh, reading from Island Sexual Health that actually for folks who are Gen Zers is actually even higher. It was something like 72% of folks who identify as queers, LGBTQ plus, that the highest percentage was folks who identify as bisexual. So that generational shift and change fascinating. Gen Zers, they get a lot of things right that definitely um, it took a long time. Like The conversations that they're engaged in are things that I think many of us are just grappling with now. Uh, for myself, didn't start even thinking about and talking about these topics until I was in my 20s and at university. The other thing I wanted to pick up on, I wanted to, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, is thinking that folks who are LGBTQ+, plus, who have the higher rates of being in consensual non-monogamous relationships than heterosexual folks, I wonder if that's because in terms of normative people who are listening, you know, I have bunny ears around normative relationships. I wonder if if you are already outside of that heterosexual norm, that heteronormative example we have around relationships, is it easier to then push the envelope in terms of if you're already questioning, well, what kind of relationship works for me? I wonder if that kind of opens up a space to talk about not only sexual orientation, but relational orientation. What are your thoughts on that? I completely agree. I mean, you're, you're, you're drawing out this logic so eloquently where if you're already not fitting into what is the ideal or what is this perfect like wedding cake topper mold of you know heteronormativity of a of you know this this vision of a man and a woman you know if you're already not fitting into that you're questioning you probably have more breathing room to question well do i also even want monogamy or you know does having, you know, different types of sexual relationships, uh, I, I think you're just more likely to kind of question a lot of things. If you're already noticing that you're not fitting into the, this, this lofty expectation and unrealistic expectation that everyone is going to find their perfect match. And that person will be someone of ostensibly the opposite gender as if there is an opposite gender um, and that they're going to get married and have 2.5 kids and a white picket fence. And if you're already questioning those sorts of things, like, I'm not sure if that's me. (laughs) Uh, I think you're probably just going to be more likely to be like, well, how do I actually want to organize my intimate life? And 
not just in terms of romance and sexual partners. I think too about how people think about friends and family. Queer people are more likely to use words like chosen family and to, you know, really designate important people in their life as like a brother or a sister or, you know, just someone close in their life that doesn't need to be bio or legal related. Um, So I think that this pushing against normativity and heteronormativity can look a lot of different ways for people who are queer in terms of their romance, but then also in terms of, you know, how they're just organizing their intimate lives in general. Mm. I love that. I love it. I mean, I don't want to say that like the gay agenda is like it's it's working here as in like, oh, if you're already questioning these things. So <laughs> I love that though, that that space to question and examine what actually works for each of us. I think it's just such a such a gift to be able to have and understandably one that can be very complex and very difficult in a society that doesn't value it as highly as kind of this this normative relationship model and sexual orientation model that we've placed. I, I want to talk a little bit about the terms consensual non-monogamy and also about like ethical non-monogamy. So sometimes we'll, we'll hear them kind of used interchangeably. And sometimes what I find really interesting is this argument of, do we even need to say consensual or ethical in front of non-monogamy? Does that make the assumption that non-monogamy, without that qualifier, that it is inherently non-consensual? It's inherently unethical. What what are your thoughts around that that language around consensual and ethical non-monogamy? Yeah. And I I see these discussions that come up in my classroom. And these types of discussions are really popular too on online forums related to non-monogamy. For me as a researcher, I I tend to use the word consensual non-monogamy ad nauseum. Um, (laughs) But I, I, I tend to use it because that is, to me, I don't, as long as people are consenting to these behaviors and there's some level of agreement for me as a researcher, I'm interested in how they're doing it, what those relationships look like. And then in terms of ethics, I I get a little cautious or hesitant to use the word ethical non-monogamy because what is that viewpoint of ethics? Is it a Western lens? Is it a U.S. lens? Is it an a-religious lens? So I tend to not necessarily use ethical non-monogamy when I'm talking in an academic sense. But at the end of the day, I view consensual and ethical non-monogamy as synonyms. I think that most people are using them interchangeably because they do signify different things. And you're bringing up a really interesting point, like, do we need even that qualifier? So in terms of research, I use the word consensual non-monogamy because non-monogamy has already been adopted for decades to include often cheating or affair type of behaviors so that someone is breaking their monogamous. So there's already a literature of other researchers using the phrase non-monogamy. And so to differentiate that, because that would be a breach of agreement, to differentiate that literature with the types of relationships that I'm studying, I do need a qualifier in that sense. Um, But in terms of this like meta question, you know, do we need this qualifier? You know, 
it would be really interesting to see if we could have a new discussion around what should even be these words. I think we've all just kind of defaulted to ethical non-monogamy or consensual non-monogamy or monogamy, but maybe the language could even be more precise around what types of agreements people have. Um, like, oh, this is a romantic, emotional, or intimate exclusive relationship compared to maybe this is a sexual, but not emotional open relationship. And, you know, maybe that could change the the course of the conversation. And so I think it's just a little tricky. Do we need these qualifiers? In the academic sense, I kind of do because I do want to differentiate the research, but in everyday language, I like to be a part of these conversations and hear what people are doing, you know, in the non-monogamy community. And I'm looking forward to to seeing how we're going to create new language because it's going to happen. We tend to think of polyamory and swinging and open relationships as these three main types of non-monogamy. And there's going to be new words to describe different configurations over time. Like most recently, relationship anarchy has been added to the vocabulary. And so I'm excited to see how these kind of words change and the ways in which people are using descriptions best embody their intimate lives. I love that. Just as normalizing shaky and wobbly, let's start normalizing kind of the the specifics around our relationships, right? Because as you said, one of the things that I like to kind of maybe not a qualifier my relationships, but you know, I'm I'm married and my husband is my my life partner and my sexual partner and you know, business partner as well. But I also have a series of chosen and I call them my life partners, like really close friends who I know that I will have them throughout my life, right? So they are people who are still traveling through this life with me. Yes, we're not married because that's not the nature of our relationship, but still like really honoring those different places that people have in their relationships. And I just love how language is evolving to reflect that. So I'm excited. Uh, Listeners, if you have ideas on other language that you use to describe your relationships, I would love to hear it. Amy, I won't speak for you, but I'm sure you would also love to hear that. (laughs) I know. I'm sort of thinking uh, maybe this should be one of my next studies. So yes, I'm very interested. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So before we, before we sign off, I first want to thank you just so much. Your, your presence and your expertise, I just so value them. And I, and I, like I think people are going to come away with this conversation with a whole new understanding and just addressing those those myths that we hear so often. I just want to put it out to you. Was there any last thing that you really want to share with people about your work, about consensual non-monogamy? I can't, not that you can distill your work into like a takeaway, but what, what do you want people to kind of maybe go away kind of chewing on and thinking about? Yeah, that, oh, that's such a great question. I think regardless of what type of relationship that someone wants to be in, even if someone knows that they, you know, they desire monogamy, that nothing's like wrong with that, that that's totally fine. Or if they're desiring non-monogamy, like that's also a valid choice and that's totally fine. And I, I, I do think that we can learn a lot from people who engage in consensual non-monogamy. Uh, like we in general, as a society, like what, what if we could unlock new communication strategies or, you know, how to be precise in our language or how to share our feelings. And we could learn from people who are managing multiple emotional and intimate and sexual bonds with people. And we just haven't really done that research yet to understand 
Um, so I think one thing that, you know, listeners could take away was even if you're really interested in a monogamous relationship, if you are a reader, um, you know, pick up a non-monogamy book. There's quite a few to choose from. Even if you're not going to implement it in your own life, it could give you some new ideas for how to talk to your partner or how to approach your close relationships or just new different ways about thinking you know, what, what type of intimate life do I want to have? And what type, how do I want to construct a family or close friendships and thinking outside of this very rigid box that is portrayed on us where we typically need to live with our romantic partner and no one else. And the priority is only placed on that romantic partner and friends and family fall by the wayside or you give them less attention as time goes on because you're putting so much time and energy into one partner. So, you know, having that freedom to rethink those things, perhaps, you know, picking up a popular non-monogamy book. There's quite a few like Opening Up by Tristan Terramino. There's a new book by Jessica Fern called Polysecure about attachment and polyamory. And those are just two examples of books that could be of interest to someone practicing monogamy or, you know, dipping their toes into non-monogamy and seeing if if that's for them. I think that is such an excellent thing to leave people with. And also to, to ask that question, what do you want your intimate life to look like? That's what a beautiful thing to start from that kind of empowered question of, you get to decide what that's going to look like. And there's so many different resources out there to help you construct that and see how that evolves throughout our lives. Right, exactly. Yeah, thank you so much, Amy. And uh, I'm so excited, listeners who are listening right now, like I'm so excited to hear your feedback, your thoughts, things that maybe surprised you and things you're like, oh yeah, I knew that, but I have a feeling a lot of you are gonna be like, I am shocked that these things are supported in research. So thank you for doing that, for filling that niche that we we so, so needed. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is such a treat. And I'm really excited for the feedback and to talk to any listeners that reach out. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Love Doctor podcast. On the next episode of the podcast, I'm bringing back Levi to talk about his emergent sexuality, about being married to me as a bisexual woman who spends a lot of time thinking and talking about sexual health, and our journey in the world of consensual non-monogamy. Now, if you have a question for the show, send me a voice memo to Podcast at gmail.com or send a voice message to me on Instagram at dr.leahtidy. Now, even if you don't send in a question, you can check me out on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review, share it with your friends, and let me know what you thought of this episode. That really helps this podcast grow and reach more people. Until then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual.